thing about social change work, you know, it's 10% talking and 90% elbow grease. It's work. You're listening to She Does, a series featuring women in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women got to where they are today. So we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Elaine. And I'm Sarah. And today we both have colds. <laughs> yes, we do. But we'd also like to introduce you to Lena Servastava, a media strategist and impact producer. Lena runs a social innovation consultancy in New York where she does narrative design for human rights and development. She has worked on impact and distribution plans for films including the Oscar-winning Born into Brothels in Innocente, and most recently, Who is Dayani Cristal? She is the co-founder of Regarding Humanity, a group aimed at highlighting ethical, effective, and creative storytelling for humanitarianism. And she teaches design for social innovation at School of Visual Arts in New York. And she travels a lot, speaking and consulting. In 2014 alone, she visited... Let's see, I've been to Ireland twice. India. Turkey. Berlin. Mexico four times. Barcelona. New Orleans. San Diego. Washington a few times. Chicago. Toronto. Tomorrow I'm going to London. And then to Mexico again. And then I go to London, Sweden, Amsterdam, Italy. And then it's Thanksgiving. (laughs) So, I think you get the point. Lena practiced law for four years before finding herself situated in the nonprofit and nonfiction arena. And we'll get there soon, but first, let's take a trip back, back to her childhood, a story that starts in upstate New York. Lena grew up in Troy, New York. Her parents came to the U.S. from India in the early 1960s after her father was recruited to practice medicine. Her upbringing was a bubbling, melting pot of cultures. As an example, she was named after a Roman Catholic nun and raised in a tight-knit Jewish community. I had an Italian godmother and then grew up with a bunch of Indians like coming over all the time. It was great. It was actually really, really fun. It was, it was just a beautiful place to grow up. Lena thinks that growing up with two older sisters turned her into somewhat of a bully. But this didn't last too long. Something changed when she started going to school. I just remember getting really shy. And it took me a long time, actually, to get over shyness. My parents were very confused in a lot of ways. They're like, wait, what happened? But I just, I couldn't even get on the phone. Why don't you order the pizza? And I just would be like, oh, I can't get on the phone. Check for yourself. Downtown. And then as soon as I hit high school, again, it just turned. I was like, oh, okay. I have a voice. I can use it. Between my family, who are very encouraging, and we all we all scream at each other like fishwives, in a good way. And then going to a feminist high school, I think it all just unlocked everything. I haven't shut up since. Lena attended Emma Willard, a boarding school for girls, where she took classes like flamenco dancing, arts of the Renaissance, and AP physics. But there was one key component to all the classes at Emma Willard. They were taught from the perspective of women and their role in history and society. 
everything we did was like Shakespeare and women, science and women. It was really interesting to the point where by the time I was a senior, I was like, oh, come on, like this is getting ridiculous. Enough with the women and. As soon as I got to college, I was like, oh my God, where are those classes that say women and? Because I went to um, an engineering school, RPI. The ratio was one woman to seven men. And I was like, I really, I need that. I need that, that gender lens again. After RPI, Lena attended NYU Law School with the eventual goal of working in human rights. But law wasn't her only option. Before law school, she was in an accelerated medical program that involved two years of college and four years of medical school. Medicine and law were career paths that were greatly encouraged by her Indian family. But two weeks away from medical school, she realized there was one major thing holding her back. And I just couldn't face cadavers. I, and I faint when I see blood, which is not a good thing in a doctor. I kind of re-strategized and realized that sort of human rights and political science and the practice of law were much more attractive to me. So my first job was as a biopharmaceutical patent litigation first-year associate. Like, it was intellectual property department. It was, oh, it was mind-numbing and soul-crushing. It was terrible. But I did it for four years because I didn't know if it was the law firm or the practice of law, and I realized it was both. Practicing law, particularly practicing law in New York in one of those big firms, changed the way I did almost everything. Like, it changed the way I, I write, changed the way I thought about argumentation. It taught me a lot. I mean, the reason that I do the work that I do now in the way that I do it is because of my training as a lawyer, so it's not all bad. The result was that I couldn't see past the next day in a lot of ways. I couldn't see, there was no visioning going on. I didn't know what to do. I went on my first vacation in a very long time and refused to give the number of the hotel to the partner I was working with. He's like, oh, what if, you know, what if I need to get a hold of you? I'm like, I'm on vacation. There's gonna be no trademark emergency, really. Lena escaped to Paris for a vacation. She spent her days walking around the city and visiting museums. And one day, she sat down with a coffee and a baguette, and something hit her. And I was sitting there under the sun, waiting for them, and I was like, this is what I want to do. I just want to do nothing for a while. And it clicked. I'm like, oh my god, I can. Lena returned to New York City. She took a look at her caseload, picked a date, and gave the firm her four weeks notice. She says at first they were concerned she was leaving for another law firm, but then she revealed her plan, her plan to do absolutely nothing. One of the partners had been like, why can't I do that? <laughs> and I was like, well, why can't you do that? You know, I mean, I'm not advocating that everybody go do nothing for a little while, but I think it's not a bad idea. Wow, that's pretty brave to, you know, invest so much time in a career and then make a big decision like that to leave it. I know, and to leave it for such a, you know, vastly different career is pretty brave. So then what happened? Well, for a year and a half, Lena lived off her savings from her four years as an attorney. And she spent her time reconnecting with her first love, the arts. This might be a good time to mention Lena is fluent in three languages, Italian, Spanish, and Hindi. She's a polyglot. So I went back to flamenco dancing and went back, took 
classes in poetry and all of these, and just really tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And I just kept going back to human rights through a sort of a lens of culture. That process of sort of almost like divorcing, right, from this profession and just experimenting and trying out things that I already knew I loved helped me understand what I, where I wanted to go. After a year and a half of walking along this new path, Lena had to address the fact that her bank account was running super low. So she took a part-time job at a law firm, but continued to volunteer in the human rights sector. These gigs eventually led to the position of executive director of a foundation based in Spain, where she worked to establish a home and school for girls in Calcutta. Through this position, she was recruited by filmmakers Zaina Brisky and Ross Kaufman to work at the nonprofit Kids with Cameras and on the impact plan for their film, Born into Brothels. I knew I couldn't do it as a visitor. I wanted to stay with them, live with them, and understand their lives. And of course, as soon as I entered the brothels, I met the children. <laughs> Born into Brothels, directed by Brisky and Kaufman, won the 2004 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The film is a portrait of several unforgettable children who live in the red light district of Calcutta, where their mothers work as prostitutes. As executive director of Kids with Cameras, Lena helped the filmmakers raise $1.2 million, which was used to purchase five acres of land and build the Hope House, which is a safe house designed to provide an alternative life by way of education and work for women caught in prostitution. But it was the first time for me that I was able to see the power of bringing together film, story, image across multiple distribution platforms to engage people. After working on Born Into Brothels, Lena created the engagement plan for The Devil Came on Horseback, a 2007 documentary directed by Annie Sundberg and Ricky Stern that exposed the genocide in Darfur through the eyes of a former U.S. Marine. It felt really good to be able to come back from Sudan and go back into my life and relax and not have to worry about what I had seen. But that didn't last very long. Lena then worked on Innocente, a short documentary directed by Andrea Nix and Sean Fine. This film focuses on a charismatic teenage girl named Innocente, and Lena's impact plan helped Nix and Fine use the film to lead discussions around undocumented children and homelessness. The film won the 2013 Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject. Just because I'm homeless doesn't mean I don't have a life, because I do have a life. I'm a girl who likes to jump in puddles and likes flowers. When I paint, I feel happy. So, so you can probably see a pattern and understand why Lena chooses the projects she works on. It all goes back to her pull towards human rights and all of these projects attached to a nonprofit with a filmmaker. Something that Lena says is essential, but not always seen in the industry. I think too much pressure is being put on filmmakers to do the impact work as opposed to the, the older, kind of like the civil society organizations and nonprofits in the NGO community that already knows how to do that. There are definitely filmmaker activists, for sure, but I think asking filmmakers to become better activists when they're not already there doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
But as a filmmaker myself, I have so many questions about how to tangibly make change with the media we create in our world today. And when we talk about impact, what are we measuring? Impact metrics, how you measure that, kind of has to emanate from the plan. Did you do what you said you were going to do, and what is the impact of that in the community? The notion that the way an audience feels about the content they've seen is a metric that we should be measuring in terms of social impact, um, I find that rather troubling, depending on what the issue is. Like in terms of genocide, right? You know, did people watch The Devil Came on Horseback and feel bad? Probably. Did that do anything? Maybe, maybe not. Most likely not, and actually it didn't. So the question about audience sentiment is, I think, a secondary inquiry to what is actually happening on the ground, the quote-unquote ground. And then the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's really hard to sort of say whether the number of Facebook likes like you, and the number of clicks that you get isn't as a valid impact metric. I mean, creating community through social media is crucial. But for what? Why do you want people to be part of your Facebook community, your Twitter community? Are you using it for broadcast? Are you using it for sharing content? What is it for? But just getting a bunch of likes or creating a hashtag is not, that's not social change. Impact measurement is a complicated topic, but these questions, these concerns, they are really what makes Lena's job make sense. All artists want their work to have an emotional impact, and in some cases, the maker wants to incite further action outside of exhibition. In the film world, we categorize these works as social change or social impact films, but at the end of the day, film is an art form, and the filmmaker is the artist, not a campaign manager or a product designer that starts a project with numbers in mind. There isn't and shouldn't be a formula that filmmakers go by to generate the most impact, but rather a person, like Lena for example, who takes the film as it is, strategizes, and then creates an outreach plan carefully tailored just for that particular film. And this is only if the filmmaker has a desire and the budget to go this route. Yeah, especially emphasis on the budget. And Lena told me that she tends not to work on projects where the film was created without an impact plan in mind before. She tends to work with nonprofits and with filmmakers together to make sure that from the beginning they're thinking about impact. And 70% of her work isn't even with filmmakers. It's with nonprofits or organizations. She's worked with the World Bank, UNICEF, and the Rockefeller Foundation. But with both filmmakers and nonprofits, she always starts with the same questions. What are we trying to achieve? What does a community need? And what are they asking for? That note signals the arrival of a new partner we have here at She Does. As some of you may know, both Sarah and I are active documentary filmmakers. And being part of a filmmaking community and looking for new techniques to improve your independent films is an important part of being a modern-day storyteller. That's why I've been a member of the filmmaking community and academy at Story and Heart for almost a year. Story and Heart Academy has tons of awesome tutorials on every aspect of filmmaking, from do-it-yourself lighting techniques to how to pitch a film to a client. Hours that used to be reserved for endlessly Googling YouTube tutorials can now be spent shooting short films and expanding your skill set. All of Story and Heart's lessons are taught by some of the most successful independent filmmakers you know and love, people who actually make money doing what they love and rack up those Vimeo staff picks. 
As a listener of She Does, you get a special offer of $25 off the annual rate for the Story and Heart Academy. And as someone who spent a lot of money on film school, I'm amazed at the level of quality in the Story and Heart lessons. It's definitely worth the ticket price. Go to shedoespodcast.com slash academy, sign up, and become part of one of the most professional independent filmmaking academies on the web. That's shedoespodcast.com slash academy. I'll see you there. Now back to Lena. Every new project she takes on forces her to learn about a new subject and immerse herself in the frameworks of that topic. This is extremely true for the film and impact plan for Who is Dayani Cristal. Lena had to learn immigration reform and the legislation around it very quickly. She has been working on the project for four years and with the director, Mark Silver, for six years on related projects. Who is Dayani Cristal is a film about one man's death on the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. It won the Cinematography Award at Sundance in 2013 and most recently, the 2015 Social Impact Media Award for Best Feature Film Documentary. Gael Garcia Bernal retraces his steps through the, in the film, retraces what probably would have been his journey from his town to the U.S.-Mexico border and then to where he died. And it's sort of a three-part narrative. It's the story of his community. It's the story of why he left. It's the story of what probably happened on the journey and the and the shelter system in Mexico and sort of those challenges. And then the third part is the, the efforts to identify him and repatriate him. And the movie is called Who is Diane Cristal is because he had an identifying tattoo on his chest that said Diane Cristal and it sort of opened up his identity. Diane Cristal was definitely an atypical case. Who's this person? We don't have any report of somebody who was missing that had those tattoos. We're trying to see if somebody knows this person and try to ID them. En vida era considerado invisible, un ilegal. When Mark found this story, he was working with the Pima County Morgan Sheriff's Office and he had been there and he'd seen a skull in the desert and he was just like, you know, what is one skull? What does one sort of skeleton tell you about the state of the world we're living in right now? So what we wanted to do with that design question of what does one skull tell you about the state of the world was to look at the system that migrants are caught in. The film's website leads people to take six different points of action to get involved with the issue. Lena, Mark, and their team also produced an interactive book that explores the issues of modern-day migration. These people, as much as they are invisible in life, they're invisible in death. My theory is that for people in the general public, there are very few things that they can actually do. They can donate, which is very powerful. You can vote. You can call your congresspeople. You can advocate yourself. And you, there are certain ways to organize, for sure. But in terms of actual sort of policy shift, you have to kind of go to the source. So that's why we are screening with institutions and with the State Department, with Congress, and things like that. So it's like this multi-level effort that all filmmakers are now expected to do. We've made sure that we've been working with the community, um, the village in the film, to help strengthen their development factors. And they asked, Mark asked them over a two-year period about what it is that they thought they needed so that they could strengthen their 
their own village so that children didn't have to leave if they didn't want to. And um, What did they say they needed? They said they needed access to water because they were getting water that was not clean two hours a day. That was it. And then to strengthen the school so that they could have, um, children could get an education. Those basic development factors were not in place. And so we raised the money, attached a local partner, and the village has been building, they've built their own water access system. They just needed the money. They have clean water now? Yeah. Yeah, they're laying, they, I mean, they're laying the pipe themselves. They're actually creating it themselves. 500 people have been working on this thing. It's pretty amazing. They're, just, they're building it themselves. How does that make you feel? Oh God, amazing. Everything, it, it's been a difficult effort, right, in a lot of ways. Anytime you work with a film, you're getting into things like distribution and, and publicity and all of these kinds of things. And ultimately for me, it's really just about what does the community need? I mean, like, it's almost reductive, right? Like if we are going in and we're telling these people's stories, then we have to sort of, I think we have to see it through. To me, there is a little bit of responsibility to basically see what the community itself needs, how we might help that, help them achieve that. And so the fact that they've been able to achieve this by themselves, you know, we've done nothing except for raise the funding. Which is huge. Which is huge. I mean, yeah, so I'm not trying to sort of like diminish, diminish our contribution, but we're not down there digging the well, you know what I'm saying? They're the ones. I'm so tired of people saying, well, we're gonna go volunteer and dig wells. People can do that themselves. Often what they need is they need influencers to sort of like to like change the system a little bit, to like change up those stop gaps. You know, I was talking to um, our local partner down there and he's like, they are so outspoken now. Like most communities in Honduras particularly are just, a lot of them are resigned and some of them are just too scared to speak out. And, and these people are like, you know, we, they, they've become very outspoken. Anytime you can start changing your own community by yourself and and knowing that there are people outside your community who are dedicated to helping it opens up you know sort of the desire to speak and the desire to help participate in the change around you There are some people who think that filmmakers shouldn't do that because documentarians are sort of aligned with journalists and you shouldn't quote unquote interfere. I don't come out of that tradition. I'm, a, I'm an activist and a development person. I'm like, no, we have, we have to do something. We can't just hijack somebody's story. Yeah, I mean, so. I would totally agree. And it's one of the reasons why I have such a problem with the film Oxiana. It's, it's about uh, prescription pill abuse in the county next door to where I did Hollow. And it's basically a filmmaker coming in and say, Here, here's this huge problem and not verifying any of the facts and just painting this place as like the most pill-addicted, pill-overdosed place and then not even vowing to screen the film there. And so the community's outraged. I mean, I understand if you're a documentary filmmaker and you want to just make a cool film about a cool subject, but my problem comes in where you, you're that person, but you decide to choose a really big problem in society. So you can't make a cool film about what you think is a cool subject when people's lives depend on that. Yeah, absolutely not. And, and you have to understand that in that depiction, you are altering their environment. You are 
absolutely affecting the way they're going to be perceived. I mean, and perception rules the way resources flow. It is really that simple. It's a huge responsibility and a burden that you have to pick up. You have to be really, really careful about it. But you also can't sort of walk in and be like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, the, the, the notion of helicoptering in and taking, taking on the, the role of, of documenting. It's just so like, you know, 19th century. You know what I mean? It's like that sort of like those anthropological kind of things. It's just, it's just not right. I think that, you know, newsworthiness is, in terms of documentary, is a, is a really good standard. But a higher standard is ethics and accuracy. And when you're thinking about a social impact documentary, I go that step further to saying, I'm in your community. I am changing the way the community is, is functioning because I'm there. I'm documenting. I'm going to have to see if I'm documenting a very particular social issue, I'm going to have to figure out what I can possibly do. When I think about the impact, social, like the media impact field, or at least the people who are sort of self-selecting into that field, like people who you and I know, right? So we, we go to these conferences and film festivals and things like that. I think people are much more aware and much, much more directed. And I think the pressure to be more accountable, right? I think the impact metrics discussion is really interesting. I think it's crucial because I think that the notion of being accountable is really important and I think it's a good one. And I also think that we put too much pressure on like single pieces of art. We have to set the cultural stage for change to happen. And it's about funding and cultivating and creating a lot of pieces of media, a lot of different documentaries, a lot of different things that will allow people to have those discussions and those meeting points and those sort of shifts in, in perception towards empathy that allows them then to go towards that intelligent action. And I don't think you can say one film did anything there was some newsworthy thing that happened relating to immigration reform. And somebody tweeted at me going, wow, is this a result of the fact that, you know, who is Diane Cristal was released in theaters? And I was like, no. <laughs> like, no, I'm like, no, we don't. It's a film. It's a film. It, and it's not about, oh, now, like, we released this film and the entire movement's going to change. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. It's about movement. Right? And we're contributing to that. Very little in our lives, I think, whether it's an app or a television show or even a law, right? It's, it's about how you react to that in time. I'll never forget the phone call we had where you, we talked about getting paid for what you do. It just blows my mind how much people expect you to do for free. What, do you, yeah. how, what have you come across in terms of that? I remember when I was first started this business six years ago, I set a rate, right? I was talking to men, I was talking to women about like setting up this business. The men were like, that's all you're charging? 
And the women, I mean, this is almost across the board. That's like, wow, that's kind of low. And I'm like, oh, but I'm in the NGO sector, not the, you know, whatever. Women were like, wow, you charge that much? Wow, is that because you're a lawyer? And I was like, wait, what? I don't understand. Like, I, part of it is self-perception sometimes. Like, I think we often are our worst enemies. Being directed about your own career is extremely important. Standing up for yourself, like commanding the salary that you know that you deserve is really important. Even if it's a lower salary because you're working in social change. Like just, you know, what can the market bear and what do you deserve? I think are good calculations. Learn your subject. I think it's really important to understand the social issue that you're working on. Know the relationships, know the field, know the cultural, political, social context of what you're doing before you film one frame. It's hard, but keep up with developments in technology and with the industry. I think, I think just knowing what's going on in the industry is really, really important because it's developing, it's developing. It'll develop without you if you don't keep up with it. Thanks to Lena for sitting down and chatting with us. Head over to our website, shejustpodcast.com, for more fun stuff about Lena and links to the work we discussed today. This episode was produced by us, Elaine Sheldon, and Sarah Ginsberg, and sound design was by Billy Wierasnik. Alongside of our guests, we want to shine a light on women making music. And the music you're hearing right now, and our featured music maker this week, is Anna Karina DaCosta. Anna Karina has been a part of the Boston music scene for eight years. She's become a staple. With a voice from above and a knack for the bass, she's been involved in more musical projects than I have fingers to count on. But the tracks you heard in today's episode are from the D-Revolutions, who you're actually hearing right now, a project Anna Karina calls a genre party, led by Brett Boucher, and 28 Degrees Taurus, an explosive, dreamy, indie rock band created with guitarist and vocalist Jensen Liu. I met Anna Karina through a friend a few years ago at a Halloween party where she had on this hilarious muscle sweatshirt costume and she was carrying a shake weight. Right off the bat, it felt good to be around her. She's charming, she's bold, and she's devoted to the people she loves. And then I saw her play a show and saw that same devotion and love of music. My older sister, Kimmy, is just like fanatical about music. The first things I remember with her is like dancing, singing, and Madonna was like the, the first memory for sure with my sister, because it was the 80s. I remember at one point when my sister was in college at BC, she made me do her answering machine, singing, you're an angel. Ooh, you're an angel. <laughs> Anna Karina spent a lot of her childhood in Virginia before moving to Texas and then Somerville, which is right next to Boston, where she lives now. But she was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and keeps that part of her very much alive. My mom was always playing in the house, like, classic Brazilian stuff, like Caetano Veloso, Gilberto Gil, Elise Regina, you know, like the Mount Rushmore of Brazilian music. But at the same time, my mom and Kimmy listened to a lot of R&B, but like Smokey Robinson and like all of that type of music. So it's just, it was a lot of music. 
know, it feels good to sing and it feels good to play and it feels good to have people like it. When you play music, you're doing it with like your friends and you look at them and you see them and like you're like, man, they wrote this song or, you know, not every single time that you're playing you feel that way, but a lot of times, you know, when you're in it and you're feeling good about it, you're like, this is great. I feel the same way when I'm at like Walden Pond, you know, if I'm like walking around there and I look around, I'm like, wow, I'm so lucky. Look at this. Like, look how blue the sky is or look at that water. Like, you know, it's like whatever you appreciate when you're around it or doing it, it's like, it's a good feeling. I just wish more people would try to play music on their own and not think like the way that I thought, that you had to be some like chosen person to do it. Be horrible at it, who cares? Like just do it, pick it up and do it. There's no, there's a whole school of thought that people think that there's rules and there's, you know, music theory and that you have to understand chord progressions and you have to do this and that. That's, that is total bullshit. You do not have to know anything. You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying you can pick up a cello and make it sound pretty, you have to work at it but you can play whatever you want on it. If you only want a pizzicato on the A string or if you only want to play whole notes, you can do whatever you want. It's music, it's making sounds and that's it. If you had a dream when you were seven that you were gonna be on stage with a, with a you know, microphone, like don't just save it for karaoke. Write a song, do it yourself. Like it's, it's, it's possible. Visit the music section of our website to get into more music made by Anna Karina and find out about her upcoming shows, projects, and albums in the works. She even made us a playlist of tracks that have influenced her, music she's been listening to from the very beginning until now. Thanks to our partner, Filmmaker Magazine, who publishes five takeaways from each guest every other week. Visit filmmakermagazine.com to find those. And also, remember to go to shedoespodcast.com slash academy to get $25 off your membership to Story and Heart. Thanks for listening to She Does. Blah. Oh, God. Mm. <clears throat> All right.